The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's see if we can start. I've got a few more of those sheets that'll come in a little while. I undershot a little bit. Um, So Scott's going to bring some back. So hang tight, and uh, when he comes back in, you can get them. We're going to finish our study of the Trinity tonight. Um, I don't want you to take that literally. We'll be studying the Trinity forever. For eternity, we'll be studying the Trinity. We'll never finish trying to comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity, the person of the Trinity. And that's exciting, isn't it? I think about uh, Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, of the increase of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. I meditated on that. And I thought, how can Christ's kingdom increase forever and ever? Well, it increases in that we keep knowing God more and more and more in heaven. So even in heaven, you won't have a full knowledge of God. You'll have a perfect knowledge, but not complete. You'll be constantly learning more and more about God. And why? Because you will continue to be a finite creature, and God will continue to be infinite. So forever we'll be studying God. But what I meant to say was this will be our final study in Acts on the Doctrine of the Trinity. Next week um, we'll begin a study on creation, and that's going to continue on for a long time. Um, The Doctrine of Creation is huge. There's a lot of other issues connected with that. For example, the whole issue of evolution. And uh, we're going to take our time on it. We're going to go through it. I think it's a very, very important doctrine. I think it's foundational to everything. And I think it's under huge attack these days. And I would like you um, to worship God the Creator, to be grateful for what He's created, to see the foundation and the importance of the doctrine of creation, and to be able to refute uh, some of the evolutionary thinking that's running around today. I, I believe that evolutionary thinking is at the root of so many of the problems we have in our country today. I really believe, even uh, we talked on Sunday about abortion, I I think that there's a direct connection between abortion and evolutionary thinking. Uh, Eugenics, all of those things comes from a concept that we're developing as a race, we're evolving. And uh, lots of bad stuff comes from that. So we'll talk about that in due time. But tonight we're looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. And those of you that have handouts, you can look. And uh, we've got, if you don't have a handout, raise your hand or coach, if you want to. Does anybody need one? All right. It looks like everybody's got one. You can put them at the table, I guess. looks like I hit it accurately after all. All right, the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery. Basically, what we're doing, we're looking in general at systematic theology, which is a study of doctrine uh, topically through the Bible. I usually like to teach uh, expositorily. I pick a passage of the Bible, move through it. Here, what we're doing with systematic theology is moving across the Bible and trying to find out topics, see everything that the Scripture has to say uh, about various topics. And the general topic that we're in now is the doctrine of God. And if you were to take an attribute study uh, together with the doctrine of the Trinity and put them together, that's about what we're getting at uh, with the doctrine of God. You put those two things together. God's attributes plus his triune nature, that's what the scripture says about God. All right, His attributes are his, uh, uh, his nature, what the scripture says, uh, how the Bible describes God. What would be some attributes of God, those of you that were in our study earlier? What would be some of the attributes of God that we've studied? His omniscience. Okay. Uh, what else? What are some other attributes? His holiness. Okay. Some others. His omnipresence. His omniscience. His holiness. His omnipresence. His foreknowledge. Okay. 
other thoughts about the attributes of God. How do we categorize them? We had two different categories of attributes, remember? Communicable, communicable and incommunicable. What are communicable attributes? The ones, the ones that we can catch, like a disease. That's right. Well, that's not what we have in mind, but you know. It's, it's things that God could pass on to us, such as, what would be an example of a communicable attribute of God? Love. Love would be a great communicable attribute. He commands us to love. He does not command us to be self-existent. Okay? It's not, impo- it's not possible for him to command us to be self-existent, but he does command us to love. Holiness would be a communicable attribute. Self-existence would be a good example of an incommunicable attribute, something that's true only of God will only be true of God. For example, omnipotence. It is not possible for there to be two omnipotent uh, beings in the universe. It's simply not possible. Okay? And so, we are not omnipotent and God omnipotent. No, God is omnipotent and we are not omnipotent. So, that is not communicable. Uh, so, those are the... Now, when you take all those attributes, the 25 attributes that we looked at, there's so many things we could say about God. But if you say all that and don't say the Trinity, you don't have the right view of God, biblically. We have to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the doctrine of Trinity, we've looked at this is our third week now. It's basically a summation of three biblical teachings. You know what they are. What are the three biblical teachings that you put together in the doctrine of the Trinity? God is three persons. God is three persons would be one of those three. One God. There is one God and only one God. That's the second. And each person, God. each person is fully God. These are the three statements. You look on the, on the uh, sheet that we have. These are the three summary statements. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. And there is only one God. Now, what we've said is that this is a doctrine of revelation. This is a doctrine of revelation. What do we mean by that? That this is a doctrine of revelation? We could not have known it instinctively. Take a minute, if you would, and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll see what we mean by that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says in verse uh, 20 and 21, he's talking about the wisdom of this world. And he's doing that because the Corinthians lived right near Athens and that whole part of Greece that, that prided itself really on philosophy, on human wisdom, on human knowledge. And here, Paul is showing the limitations of human philosophy, the limitations of human wisdom and knowledge. And he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He had said earlier in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. What does that mean? Well, what were the Greeks trying to figure out? What were they thinking about all the time? ultimate meaning and reality. If you look at Plato and the others, they're trying to figure out this universe. Did they think about God? Did they have thoughts about God? Of course they did. Why were they able to have thoughts about God apart from the Bible? Explain that to me. How could they have thoughts about God apart from the Bible? God gave them a brain. They're creating the image of God. There's something called natural revelation. And so within our own thoughts and as we look in the universe, we can discern certain things about God. And they got pretty far. They really did. They believed that there was one powerful, all-powerful creator, Plato did. Did he figure out a trinity, though? No way. They would never have figured that out. And so what does it say in verse uh, 21? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. Stop there. What is that saying in verse 21? 
in the wisdom of God, it was wise for God that the world could not figure him out, basically, if you rephrase it that way. It was wisdom from God to remain hidden from us, you see. It was wisdom from God. Therefore, the world cannot figure God out. Does that mean that God cannot be known? No, God can be known, but he must reveal himself. You cannot know him unless he reveals himself to you. And so the doctrine of Trinity is a very good example of how this must be revealed. If he doesn't reveal this, we will not know. And so he reveals the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a, a doctrine of revelation. We've also seen in our past study, this is all by way of review, that the doctrine of, of the Trinity was progressively revealed. What do we mean by that? Progressively revealed. That's right. We know more about the Trinity than Abraham did while he was on the earth. Would you say that's a true statement? We do. We know more about the Trinity than Isaiah was even after he had his vision of God. We know more about the Trinity than any Old Testament person while they lived on the earth. Not now. They know more about the Trinity than we do now because they see him face to face. But in their days on earth, they were limited in their knowledge. They only knew some things. Now, there was nothing in the Old Testament revelation that contradicted the doctrine of the Trinity. Quite the opposite, actually. There was preparation and room made for the doctrine of the Trinity. We've talked about that. Uh, for example, the plural speaking in Genesis where he said, let us make man in our image. There's a plural kind of speaking. We've also seen the angel of the Lord revelations. And any, any Old Testament scripture that speaks of the deity of Christ would be preparation for the doctrine of the Trinity. There are numerous places that teach, uh, that prepare us, let's say, for the doctrine of the Trinity. But there was no full and clear revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity until what moment? What would you say is the moment when the doctrine of the Trinity was first fully revealed? The baptism of Jesus. That really is the key moment. That's when it was first fully and clearly revealed. This is my beloved Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. And so the, uh, the Holy Spirit came down on His dove and you have a... a a picture to some degree. I'm going to say picture because you only get the voice of the Father. But you have a picture of the doctrine of the Trinity there at the baptism of Christ. And from that moment on, we have a, full, a fuller and, and larger revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity. We've talked also, and we finished up last time, with various errors. Errors uh, that have crept up concerning the doctrine of the Trinity. Each one of them denies one of those three statements that we affirmed earlier. For example, the statement that there is only one God that there is only one God. It's denied by the error, error of tritheism. I said that uh, nobody, for the most part, church has not held this. But I mention it to you because I believe that our nation is going toward paganism, toward polytheism. I think that's the trend that I see. We're he heading that way. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun, folks. And you watch and see, we are becoming a pagan culture. It's very much like the days of Rome and all that. And so, little by little, we're going to start to see amalgamations of Christian truth. And we may go at some point to a, you know, a form of polytheism and maybe even tritheism. Um, more commonly, we have um, the idea of modalism. And that denies that there are three persons in the Trinity. Three persons in the Trinity. Uh, modalists would say that there's one God who has at various times revealed himself as Father or Son or Spirit. Sometimes he reveals himself as Father. Sometimes he reveals himself as Son. Sometimes he reveals himself as Spirit. But it's just one God, not three persons. What's the problem with that view? The prayer of Jesus, when Jesus cries out to the Father, Father, glorify yourself, and he answers back saying, I have glorified. He says, glorify your name. He says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. 
So that's uh, impossible for the modalist view. cannot happen. But then even more common is the error of Arianism. The error of Arianism is a little harder to refute. And we're going to talk today about why it's harder to refute. The doctrine of Arianism teaches what? That Jesus is what? A created being. And if Jesus is a created being, he's a, a, of a lower order of being in essence than the Father. He may be a God, but he's not true God. He's not very God. He is at a lower level. Who teaches that these days? Jehovah's Witnesses do. Okay, a very popular heresy. All right? And we have shown that you must believe, John 8:26, you must believe that Jesus is God. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So you must believe in the deity of Christ in order to go to heaven. You must. It's not an option. And if you believe in the deity of Christ and deny and, and uh, accept these others, that there's only one God and that the Son is not the Father, then you must accept the doctrine of the Trinity in order to go to heaven. Must. Okay? So the Arians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, deny the full deity of Christ. The reason that this is so attractive is that there are many verses that seem to suggest that the, fa that the Father is greater than or the Son is lower than or of a lower order than the, than the Father that there's a discrepancy between the two. And we're going to talk about that today. The subordination of the Son to the Father. We're going to talk about that. Why there are these verses and uh, how to understand it. And how can you believe in subordination and be orthodox and not drift into what we call subordinationism. We're going to talk about those things tonight. All right. First, I'd like to get into the idea of how the Son uh, reveals the Father. The, the Son sent, was sent into the world by the Father to reveal Him so that we might know Him. If the Son had not been sent into the world, we would not know the Father. We would not understand who He is. Hebrews 1.3. Somebody read this for me, printed right here on the page. Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in Heaven. Okay, so the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Exact representation uh, refers to the seal made into soft uh, wax, let's say, uh, by a signet ring. A signet ring, for example, would be uh, a mark that an emperor or a governor or whatever would make in an official document so you knew it was his document. These were used right on through the Middle Ages and on into, well, really into recent times. We don't use them as much anymore. But this was the way that you knew that this document you're reading really came from the authoritative uh, figure, the, the leader, the pope or the bishop or the, the prince or whatever. And so the idea is that Jesus is the exact representation uh, of the Father. That implies that when you are looking at Christ, you're seeing the Father. All right? You're looking at Christ, you're seeing the Father. He also says the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Now, we're going to talk about that more in a minute, but let's look at the next verse in John 14. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says in a very uh, key way, you've heard it before, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he says this in verse 7, If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. Stop there. Think about it. What is Jesus saying when he says, if you really know me, you would know my Father? I'm equal to the Father. I'm equal to the Father. Or identical. or identical. To know me is what? To know the Father. All right? If you really knew me, you would know my Father. And then he says, from now on you do know him 
and have seen him. That's kind of important, isn't it? What do you mean, and have seen him? Well, if you're confused by that, you're in good company because Philip was confused at that moment. You remember? He said, okay, we've been talking about the Father now all this time. Enough is enough, says Philip. Show us the Father and that will be sufficient for us. Right? What is Philip asking for? What does he want? There's a yearning inside him and he's speaking it. What does he want? He wants to see God. He wants to see God. Is that a familiar theme in the Bible? Yeah. Moses said, now show me your glory. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And how does Jesus answer him? Verse 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me? Stop there. That's amazing. What he's saying is, what is, what is Philip asking to see? He says, I want to see God the Father. And Jesus says, don't you know me? Don't you know me? That is a statement of the deity of Christ. I'm telling you that the deity of Christ is all through John's gospel. It's not just one one. It's everywhere. What is Jesus claiming here? He's claiming that he's God and he actually tells you what he's claiming. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. When you look at me, you're looking at the Father. When you see me, you're seeing the Father. Okay? Now, this is kind of interesting, okay? Have you seen Jesus? Well, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Okay? Can we look at Jesus and see the Father? I think we can, all right, in the way that he intends. Because, frankly, his face, his body shape really is not the point. It never has been the point. What is the point? It's the truth of the life of Christ. It's his words, his actions, his character. It's who he was. What his face looked like doesn't matter at all. If it mattered, don't you think we'd have a description somewhere of his physical appearance? I, you know, I'm not going to get into pictures of Jesus right now, but I'm just saying it's just not important what he looked like. I should just move on right now at this point. Okay. But um, you can, in some places, see pictures of Jesus. And uh, when, you, when you look, you say, is this a, you know, a picture of Jesus? You know, I remember we were, we were at a meeting, we were talking about pictures of Jesus. And somebody said, yeah, what, what would John say if he saw that picture? And the answer is, who's that? <laughs> Never seen that guy in my life. You know, at some point, somebody sat for a portrait. And from then on, that's what Jesus was painted like in the West. And so when you see a man walking down the street, you say, hey, he looks like Jesus, right? If he's got long hair and a beard and all that. I'm thinking, how do you know? My, my feeling is if Jesus' physical appearance were important, there would be somewhere a description of it. But there are ample descriptions of Christ, aren't there? Many, many. Jesus gives us one himself, doesn't he? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. Stop there. Those are descriptions. He gives them of himself. That's all the description you need of Christ at that moment. You start to accumulate those descriptions and you have the portrait of Jesus that you need. You don't need any other. The New Testament gives you an accurate picture of Jesus. And so you have seen Jesus and therefore you've seen the Father. Do you see? You've seen how Jesus revealed the Father. To look at Jesus was actually a detriment. It really was. I mean, you think, oh, if only I could have been there to see him. I, it actually is something you had to overcome. It frankly was a stumbling block because he looked like everybody else. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That wasn't the point. And so it actually would not have helped you to see him, even though I know you think that it would have. Jesus said, it's actually to your benefit that I go away. You know, and you say, how could that possibly be? But that's what he, that's what he said. And so to see Jesus was to see the Father. Well, in what sense? 
Well, to see how he taught, the how he interacted, what the things he did, we have the descriptions in the gospel. And so therefore, the word, the written word of God becomes very important, doesn't it? Because it's the only description of Jesus you have. You don't have any other way. And so he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He also says in First Peter chapter 1, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. How is that? Because you've heard the word of God. It's been taught to you. Okay? Now, how do we experience the Son, S-U-N? Stop and think about it for a minute. It's a little bit unfortunate that in the English language, S-U-N and S-O-N are pronounced the exact same way, so you may get a little confused with this analogy. But I'm speaking about the sun that rose and set today. How do you experience it? Okay, it will make things visible, so you experience its what? Light, okay? How else? Do blind people experience the sun? Yeah, of course, heat. Those are basically the two ways. You get light and you get radiation. And I'm not going to go into physics lesson here because, quite frankly, it's over my head. Okay, this is exactly what Einstein was working on in terms of uh, quantum mechanics and all this kind of stuff, particles and waves and all that. I'm not going to go into all that, but that basically is how you experience it. Now, in effect, Philip was saying to the, uh, to the, to the light and to the heat, please, I want to experience the sun, S-U-N, apart from light and heat. And he's saying, it doesn't, your statement doesn't make any sense. I'm here to bring the solace, the sun, to you. This is my revelation. You see, I told you it's confusing because of the word S-U-N, S-O-N. But the sun is the radiance of God's glory. He's here to bring the Father to you. And you don't experience the Father except through him. Do you see what I'm getting at? You can't get at the Father except through the son. You can't understand him. And so Philip's statement actually made no sense, even though it seems like it made perfect sense said, I want to experience the Father apart from you, Jesus. Show us the Father. And he's saying, you, it can't be done. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you see how that works? So he is the revelation of God. No knowledge of the Father is possible apart from the Son. Look at John 1.18. <clears throat> no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the, of the Father, he has explained him or exegeted him is, a, is a, the Greek word. So you, nobody's ever seen God, but you get the only begotten God or the only begotten Son of God uh, who's in the bosom of the Father. That is Jesus. And so if you've looked at Jesus, you've seen the Father. He's explained the Father. And then even more telling, Matthew 11:27. Somebody read this. This is a stunning verse. And we're coming up to it, by the way. Get ready to have your, your boots knocked off in two weeks. Uh, I'm going to be preaching through Matthew 11:20 20 through 30. And I have learned so many things unbelievable in there. There's going to be three sermons on that section, okay, on the sovereignty of God. Some of the most dramatic statements you'll ever find on the sovereignty of God are in Matthew 11, uh, uh, 25, well, 21 really through uh, 27. So we'll get to that. But look at verse 27. Somebody read Matthew 11, 27. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal. Wow. You know, the funny thing about Matthew 11 is that a lot of people don't really know that it's there. You think if you want to know about the sovereignty of God, you're going to go to Romans 9 and a lot of these other places. Just go to Matthew 11 and work on it for a while. What is Jesus saying here in these? This is Jesus' statement. It's Jesus who's making this statement. What is he saying here? Look at the first part. No one knows the Son except the Father. That's an interesting statement that Jesus is making there. What does it mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Really? Yeah, because the Greek word is epigenosis. It means full knowledge. So it's a full knowledge. 
And what is he saying? There's not a person on earth who knows me. None of you know me. And it's interesting, it's the one place that I find Jesus sarcastic. You say, Jesus would never use sarcasm. Yes, he does. In one place, they say, we know you and where you come from. He said, but when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he comes from. And Jesus said, yes, you really know me. He says it straight out. It's just indicative. He says, yes, you know me and you know where I'm from. They didn't know where he was from. They didn't know he was born in, in, in Bethlehem and not in Nazareth. They didn't know his story. But even more, they didn't know him. You don't know me. And he says it straight out here. No one knows the son except the father. What else does he say? No one knows the father except the son. Does that make sense? They know each other fully, but nobody else knows them. Except there is a little clause here at the end. Thank God. <laughs> okay. And what is that little clause at the end? And those to whom the son chooses, bulimized to will, he makes a choice, chooses to reveal him. Okay, so just come in two weeks and listen. We'll talk, you know, very, very interesting statement. But what he's saying is, I am able to reveal the Father to you. You come to me, I'll show you the Father. And that's, Philip's statement, you know, for all the things I've said here is a wonderful one because he wants to know the Father and he's come to the right place. He just doesn't have the right understanding yet. If you want to know the Father, come to Jesus and he'll bring you to the Father. All right, any questions about that, how Jesus reveals the Father to us? Don't, don't stumble over that, that S-U-N analogy, but meditate on it. Think of how, how could you experience that burning ball in the center of the solar system apart from light and heat, and you'll see how Philip, you know, statement is. Yeah, go ahead. Is that the same thing as saying, uh, if you know one, you know both? Yeah. Yes, and, uh, but not quite in one sense. I, yes, in one sense it's true. But the Jews who have rejected Christ cannot know the Father. If you, if you don't know me, you don't know my Father. He says it in John 5, very plainly. So to reject Christ is to shut off knowledge of God the Father. It's really that plainly. You can't get it. It's not that all roads lead the same way. Have you heard this? We all worship the same God? Mm -hmm. It's just utterly false. All roads do not lead to the same place. Well, actually, in one sense they do. I've talked about this before. All roads do lead to the same place except one. Christianity leads to the opposite place. Meditate on that. And, um, but uh, at any rate, they all do lead to the same place, namely to destruction. But there is one road, a narrow road and a narrow gate through which we enter and it leads to life. And only a few find it. And what I'm saying is uh, there are not you know, many ways to this one God. We don't, we don't, you know, if you reject the Son, you don't know the Father. So that's very important to share with your Jewish friends and neighbors because they, the Old Testament revelation coupled with a rejection of the New Testament uh, revelation of Christ means you don't, know the, you don't know the Father. You've rejected him. You don't know him. Okay? All right, let's move on to the next subject. And this is very important. It's the idea of subordination versus subordinationism. You say, well, this is just fancy words. Well, let's try to understand what they mean. Subordination, the second, I, I would like to actually re reverse these statements, but subordination holds that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father, not in being or essence or attributes, but in role or function. Do you see that? That's what subordination teaches, that Jesus is subordinate to the Father in role or function, but not in essence or being. Subordinationism is a heresy. It teaches that the Son is, is eternal, not created, but yet still inferior in being and essence from the Father. So it's not quite Arianism. Jesus is not a created being. 
but still he's subordinate. He's not quite equal to the Father in being and essence. What is the difference? Well, it has to do with the difference between being in essence and role or function. Being in essence and role and function are two different things. And I think that, you know, we've been through the whole gender and authority issue in our church and people struggle on this because they just don't understand the distinction between being in essence, you know, your value as a person and your role or function. Jesus takes a subordinate role or function in the Trinity and has eternally done so and will eternally do so. It's not a temporary thing just tied to the days of his incarnation or else the, I believe the terms father and son don't mean anything. And so I think he's eternally father, the father is, and the son is eternally son. And so therefore it implies an eternal subordination of role, but not at all of being in essence. So let's try to understand it and see where we get it from. First of all, Origen's heresy, you can read about it. Origen was a church father around the third century and he advocated subordinationism. He was rejected by the Council of Nicaea. But there is a, such a thing called a biblical subordination. First of all, Jesus makes a statement. Look at John 14, verse 28. And I told you this is why Arianism becomes attractive, why some people are appealing, or it appeals to some people. John 14, 28, Jesus said, You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Did you see that? That's remarkable. What is Jesus saying? The Father is greater than I. Well, you have to be careful. Realize that whenever you come to a difficult text, you have to interpret the difficult text in light of things you've already interpreted or already seen. For example, in John 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Okay, There's, There is definitely an equality of essence and of being between the Father and the Son. But Jesus is saying the Father is greater than I. What does he mean by that? What does that mean? Role and function is greater. That must be what it means. Now, there is a question whether that ends as soon as Jesus receives back the glory that he had from his Father. But I would argue that it continues, and I think I can prove it from 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? I think it continues on. But it at least is true in the days of his incarnation on earth. He took a subordinate role while on earth at least. We're going to say that. Do you all agree that at least that must be true? when he says the Father is greater than I, and he says, I don't do my own will. I didn't come down to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So he takes a subordinate role while on earth. Then you start to look at things that were granted or given to him by the Father. These are remarkable statements. First of all, life itself. Look at John 5.26. Somebody read this, John 5.26. Wow. I tell you what, John is full of these bombshells. You know, you can just read by him and you don't even take the time sometimes to stop and say, what did he just say? What is Jesus saying here? He said, just as the Father has life in himself. What does it mean that the Father has life in himself? Self he's self-sustaining, he's self-existent. Right? Well, that's true. Are you? Do you have life in yourself? No, in Him we live and move and have our being, right? So life comes from the Father. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. We, de we, we have a derivative existence. Do you see that? We have a deriv derivative life. So does the devil, by the way. That's the thing you need to keep in mind. I often think about the devil in terms of a big, ugly, electronic pinball game with all these lights and a plug in the wall, right? And, and it's like the Father's just there, and it's like any time. Anytime he wants to, he can just go, 
boop, and that's it. He can, he, can, he can will him out of existence anytime he chooses to. Never, never think that the, that the father and the devil are fighting on equal terms. They're not. He can pull a plug on his existence anytime. But the father is self-existent. And so he says the father has life in himself. What does it say about the son at the second half? The son has life in himself. Did you see that? What does that mean, that the son has life in himself? Self-existent. Okay, but how are they connected, the two concepts? That the Father has granted it to him. Can you understand that? Please shake your head no, because I don't. I have no idea what that means, that both of them are self-existent and yet it's granted from the Father to the Son. He is therefore eternally begotten of the Father. What does begotten mean? Well, it means to be a father to a son. That's what beget means. But beyond that, we cannot go. And you and I are both now right at the edge of our comprehension. Okay? How the father has life in himself and the son has life in himself and the link is that the father granted it to the son, I don't know. But it, it tends toward a subordination in one sense. Not of being or essence. But he's speaking this way that this was given to me. And he uses this kind of language all the time, doesn't he? This is not unusual for Jesus when he speaks of the Father. All right, what else? Uh, how about judgment? Verse 22, Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted or granted all judgment to the Son. He doesn't take upon himself the role of judge of all the earth. It is given to him by the Father. We get the same kind of thing in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, when it says that Jesus did not seize or take upon himself uh, the role of high priest, but it was given to him by his Father. For he says, uh, you are my father today, I have begotten you. So in other words, he doesn't grab high priesthood. It's given to him by the father. Okay, how about uh, all authority? Matthew 28:18. then Jesus came to them and said, all authority and in heaven and on earth has been what? Given to me. Well, by whom? Definitely by the father. Okay? And how about the entire universe? Is that, if that were not enough? Okay? John 3:35. the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Wow, that's amazing. But again, you get the sense of the Father is the one who has everything to give and gives it over to the Son, who receives it. Okay? And then Matthew 11:27. There's that Matthew 11 again. You ought to go home and read it. I'll tell you what, there is so much in there. But it says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. Did you see that? Everything's get, been given to me. All right, so the Father surrenders the universe, all the universe given over to the Son. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And how about the church? Uh, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So he puts the church and everything under Jesus. But again, it's the Father who's doing that. Do you see that? There's a relationship, Father and Son. That's why I say this is eternal. This is not just tied to the earth. The Father is also spoken of as the head of Christ. Those of you that were in our Sunday school on Sunday, you went through 1 Corinthians 11. Jet tour through 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. Um, I hope you took a minute to look at this particular verse. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, again, what does that mean? Well, Consistently, the word head means one in authority over to whom the other submits. Did Jesus submit to the Father? No question about it. What's difficult here is that it says that the, that the head of Christ is God still. And so he continues to be head of 
the Father continues to be head of the Son. Okay, and then Christ only does the will of his Father. In John 6, 37, 38, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never drive away, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So definitely in the days of his incarnation on earth, in the days that he walked on earth, Jesus was there on somebody else's business in effect. Not at all to say that he was not intensely interested in that, but he says consistently, I don't, I don't do anything on my own, but only what the Father has told me to do, that's what I do. I don't say anything on my own, but only what the Father's told me to say. He shows me all the things he's doing, and he'll show me even greater works than these. This is the relationship. I just stand as a servant, and I do what I'm told. And so he submits uh, to the will of the Father. Now, in the end, there's an end time or eschatological subordination. Now, this is a very interesting concept. First of all, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. It says, He made known to us, He is God the Father now. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That is what he is doing right now. He's bringing rebellious, disparate elements of the universe together under the headship of Christ. And so that process is, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so the Father is bringing things together under the Son. So the Son is head over all things. But look even more at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 and following. This is talking about Christ's resurrection physically from the dead. Okay? And it says there, Christ has indeed raised, been raised from the dead, the first fruits <clears throat> of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through, an, through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Now look at verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Very interesting verse. Verse 24, basically, it seems to me the motion is this. The Father has taken the universe and handed it over to the Son. All things have been committed to me by my Father. So he's got the universe. Now, what is he doing in the universe? He's subduing all of his enemies. He's subduing everything. And when he's finished subduing everything, he's going to take this now somewhat, I guess we would speak, perfect universe and hand it back to the Father. Verse 24, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Verse 25, For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies <clears throat> under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I preached a whole sermon on that. The last enemy. That's an Easter sermon. The, not, not the first enemy, the last enemy. So death is going to be here until the end. He has willed it that way. I believe that's part of the reason why he wept at Lazarus' tomb. Okay, This was a, just a foretaste of his power. It was a signal, a sign, but it was not the removal of death. No, death is the final enemy, and it's going to be with us. And why? Well, because it says there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's when we're in the new order. <laughs> okay, We're not there yet, folks. So there is death, and there is mourning, and there is crying and there is pain and it's going to be that way and that's just all there is to it. 
and we have to accept that. All of us will die if we are not the final uh, generation, if we are not that mysterious final generation spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, who will be there when the, when the twinkling of the eye and the trumpet sounds, we will die because it is that old order of things. And so he must reign until he destroys death, and someday he will. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. He's going to take death and throw it in the lake of fire, and there'll be no more death. That's a wonderful thing. And when he has thrown death in the lake of fire, when he has, it says in verse 27, put everything under his feet, then it says, now when it says that everything is put, put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. Do you see that? Everything, the whole universe is under Christ, but it was God who put it there. Do you see that? And so God is not under Christ. That's what that verse is saying. It does not include God the Father. He is not under Christ. Verse 27. He has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. Verse 28. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, that verse 28 is why I add the word eternally subordinate. Do you see that? I don't think it can be refuted. I don't really know how you're going to refute it. This is an eschatological concept. This is the end of the universe. This is when everything's done and he will be subject to him who put everything under him. Is that a problem? Father and son don't think it's a problem. It's not a subordination of essence or being, but just a role. And they're delighted in it. It's not a problem. And so there's this final... And do you have any questions about that? There's a lot in there, isn't there? There's a lot of things in there, Landis. Is this not why we have trouble maybe in the contemporary church with the concept of authority, you know, like the pastoral leadership in mm -hmm. uh, Hebrews 13, 17? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a hard time separating out essence, being, from our role. We really do. We, we think somehow we're all about our resume. And that really comes from being Americans. What have you accomplished? You know? Go ahead. The Spirit isn't mentioned in these verses, so I don't really know how to answer. I, I hesitate because I feel like we're on holy ground to say how the Spirit fits into this all in all. Uh, I can't answer you. So I don't think so. I think that in the end you end up with triune, and I think how the Father and the Son and how the Spirit relates to the Father and the Son subjection, I cannot say because the verse doesn't say. I could speculate, but I think it would be dangerous. I, I was um, under some time pressure as I was putting this together, and I spoke to Jeremy. I said, do you realize what I'm covering right now? I've got about an hour and ten minutes to write on subordination. It's like somebody rushing in to do brain surgery. Okay? I'm going to go real, real quick on this one. Okay? You realize the dangers here? So it's good for me to stay just with the texts and read them and talk about them, you see. All right? That's a great, that's a great question. Great question. All right, now let's look finally at worship. Okay? Subordinate, yes, but yet they are both worship the same. That's very important, isn't it? Subordinate, yes, but they're equally worshiped. Uh, first, we get Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Heard this before, but there it is. In the vision at night I looked, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Who's the Ancient of Days? It must be God the Father. It must be God the Father. can be no other in this context. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. 
All peoples, nations, and many of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so here he is worshipped, just as the Ancient of Days is worshipped. Well, John 5, 22 and 23 makes it even plainer. It says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. What does the word just as mean? In the same way. So the Father and the Son get equal honor, equal worship, equal glory, equal praise. Is that true? Yes, they do. Absolutely, because they're equal in essence and being. Different roles, but equal in essence and being. And so they are honored equally, just as they honor the Father. And then he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is a key verse for speaking to your Jewish friends and neighbors. If you don't honor the Son, you do not worship God. It's just that simple. It's impossible to worship God the Father without worshiping the Son. And then the familiar <clears throat> Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, him Christ. God the Father exalted Christ to the highest place. And again, can you imagine it being said, therefore God the Son exalted God the fire, Father to the highest place? Can you imagine that? There's no verse like that. It never says that anywhere. It's always the other way around. It's always the Father doing things to the Son exalting him, giving him, that kind of thing. And yet they're equal in being in essence. Okay? It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then this key phrase, to the glory of God the Father. What does that mean? Well, it means all the worship that pours toward Christ is really to the glory of God the Father. He's not, there's no jealousy. There's no, well, you're getting more than me today. It doesn't work that way at all. Any worship given to the Son, God the Father is glorified. He accepts it as worship to Him. And then so a series of interesting verses. I, I decided to zero in on the concept of the Lamb and the throne. And you look these verses up. They're very, very interesting. You've got the throne in Revelation chapter 4, and then the 24 elders seated around the throne. You know all that. It's a... And there's a description of a rainbow that looked like an emerald and all these kind of things in Revelation 4. And then there's one seated on the throne and he's got a scroll in his hand and Revelation 5 uh, comes. And then the lamb comes and takes the throne or, or the scroll and then Revelation 5, 6. <clears throat> then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne. That's interesting. And it's going to get more interesting the more you look at these other verses. The lamb is standing in the center of the throne encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Revelation 5.13 <clears throat> Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, glory, praise, honor, and glory and power forever and ever. Stop there. This is a worship scene in heaven, isn't it? And what do they say in verse 13? Who are they worshiping? They're worshiping him who sits on the throne and the lamb. Do you see that? The word and means in addition to. In addition to the one sitting on the throne, we are worshiping the lamb. Well, who is the one who sits on the throne? It must be God the Father, right? And who is the lamb must be God the Son. Well, then why is the lamb standing at the center of the throne in verse 6? What does that signify? Well, that signifies the doctrine of the Trinity. <laughs> you can't separate them. He is the Lamb, but in verse 6, He's standing at the center of the throne. But in verse 13, there's a distinction made. 
from the Father and the Son. Keep going. Look at chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, <clears throat> standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you see that? So there's again a distinction made here between God who's sitting on the throne and the Lamb. Now, Revelation 7:17. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Stop there. This is just very perplexing, isn't it? In some verses, there's a distinction made between the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And in other verses, absolutely no distinction made. It's the Lamb who's on the throne. Why do you think this keeps... Do you think John keeps forgetting who's on the throne? No, there's definitely something going on here. What is he trying to communicate? Equality. They both rule. There's not a distinction that can be made between the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And yet there is a distinction being made or else we wouldn't be using this language. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. Do you see it? And they're equal in worship, constantly being worshipped. And then finally, the very final chapter of the Bible, we see the same thing. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now here we get the same thing because you get and of. What do I mean by that? There's one throne, two beings, and they're both sitting on it in one sense. It is the throne of God and it's also the throne of the Lamb. One throne, just as there is one name. You're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, so also in heaven, one throne. And yet there it is. Sometimes the Lamb's at the center of the throne. Sometimes there's a separation made by the word and. But here there's a unity. The river flows down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You see that? There's not two thrones. There's one throne, but it's the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 cro crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. <clears throat> and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Who do you think the him refers to here? It's kind of unclear. <laughs> God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. That's who they'll serve, and they will see him and they will rejoice in him. Okay? So do you see this subordination, unity of being in essence, and ultimately, finally, especially in the book of Revelation, complete equality in worship? Do you see these things? <clears throat> do you understand the doctrine of the Trinity? <laughs> Final topic tonight is the distinctions made between the Father, Son, and Spirit in various key roles. First of all, in creation and then in redemption. They have different roles. They do different things. God the Father is said to create, but He creates by the Son through the Spirit or by the, by the Spirit through the Son. The by and through are a little difficult to discern. And this is what I'm, I want to say. I don't know the difference between by and through, but I know that it's God the Father who does the creating and He does it by the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see how we see that. First of all, in Genesis 1.1, very familiar verse, <clears throat> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Also, it says in uh, Isaiah 42.5, this is what God the Lord says, He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. So God the Lord is the one who created. 
Isaiah 45, 11 and 12. This is what the Lord says. <clears throat> the Holy One of Israel and its Maker, concerning things uh, to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? Listen, it is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. So who is claiming to create here? Who's the one who created? God the Father. Although in the book of Isaiah, we can't speak in that language, just God. But we know it's God the Father. Isaiah 45:18. This is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And now, very, very interesting, Isaiah 44:24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Now, why is that important? Why would that be a great verse to show a Jehovah's Witness, for example? Well, when you combine that verse with Colossians 1, 15 and 16, you'll see why. Look down, just two verses down. Uh, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Do you see that? So God didn't create anything except through the Son. Look at Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. Now stop again. Look back at Isaiah 44, 24 and circle the words by myself and all alone. This is the NASB rendition of this, an accurate one. What is it teaching in Isaiah 44:24 about creation? What's it teaching? God did it. Specifically what though? Alone. He did it alone. What is he saying when he said, I did it alone? There was no one with me. No one was with me. All right, well, how do you combine that with Colossians 1, 15 and 16? What does that say? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, Christ, all things were created. How do you put the two of those together? He is God. And there's no, other, there's no way to evade it. There really is no way to evade it. Because if they deny the deity of Christ, then, then how do they explain Isaiah 44? Isaiah 44, 24. So all things were created by the Father through the Son. By the power of the Holy Spirit is harder to prove by Scripture. And so I've given you some verses there, but it's a little bit harder to show. Genesis 1, 2 says, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then Isaiah, uh, sorry, Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by his breath. Ruach in Hebrew can mean spirit, by the spirit of his mouth. So, uh, like I said, it's a little bit harder, and if you all want to work on the spirit's activity in creation, um, go ahead. But they, they, there's a distinction of role here. The Father speaks the creation, but he does it by the word of God, who is Jesus Christ. We get this even more clearly in the issue of redemption. The redemption works this way. The Father plans it. The Son accomplishes it. The Spirit applies it individually. You see how that works? They have different roles. The Father made the plan. It's the Father who, who thought up the plan of salvation, so to speak. It is the Father who predestines, who elects. It is the Father who does these things. It is the Son who, who enacts the plan. It is the son who says to Peter, put your sword back in its place. 
because if you try to save me, how would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? I'm on a timetable here. I'm on a schedule. I'm following a plan and I can't deviate from it. I must die on the cross. So the son accomplishes redemption. The spirit applies it individually to people so that they receive the benefits of it. Different roles. Isn't that beautiful? That is a beautiful thing. Look at the first. God the Father plans redemption and sends His Son to do it. Ephesians 1, 3-12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Who's the He? Who, do, who does the choosing? God the Father. He chose us in who? In Christ. Definitely. In love, He... Verse 5, predestined us, he, God the Father, predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. <clears throat> in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his, that is Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Who's the he here? Who's the His? This must be God the Father. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Do you see this? Do you see God the Father so active, so strong, making a plan? He's making a plan. But it's always in Christ because the plan is worthless if there's not somebody who's going to accomplish it. And he, so the two go together. The plan made by God the Father, but it's God the Son who's going to bring it about. Why? Because do you see the word blood in there? Who's going to have the blood to do that? It's got to be the God the Son in this incarnation. And so through His blood, we have this forgiveness. And so God the Father also sends His Son, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave or sent His only, His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. So God the Father makes the plan and then dispatches Christ, sends Him into the world to go accomplish the plan. Okay? Now the Son accomplishes the redemption. John 6.38-40 through 40, gives you a strong sense of the Son's marching orders, a sense of His marching orders. I have come down from heaven, said Jesus, not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that He has given me, but shall raise them up at the last day. Your salvation is right in that verse. Your security is in that verse. It is a precious verse in the diadem of Scripture. It is a sparkling jewel. My will is that I will lose none of all that the Father has given me. My Father's will, I shall lose none of all that He's given me, but I will raise them up. When? At the last day. He's got an end time view of this whole thing. None of them gets lost. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. All right, what is it, what are you saying? My Father has a will in this matter. He has a plan. He has a purpose. I'm here to carry it out. That's why I came, to carry out that will, that plan. And then Hebrews 10. <clears throat> I love this. We're studying this on Thursdays. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body 
you prepared for me. Who's the you? God the Father prepared a body for God the Son. When did he do that? Inside Mary's womb. No joke. Right inside his womb or her womb, uh, he prepared the hands that would be nailed to the cross. The blood that he had already purposed would be shed. It was God who did that. Very physical here. A body you prepared for me. Okay? With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you are not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Isn't that beautiful? I'm here to do your will. I'm here as a servant to give my life even to death on a cross to accomplish your plan. And so he does. First, he said, sacrifice and offerings, <clears throat> burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Now look at verse 10. What a sweet verse. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What's the will in mind in verse 10? God the Father's plan. And by that plan, we have been made holy, but not through nothing, through a specific time and space event, the sacrifice of Jesus. And so that is redemption planned and then redemption accomplished. Now we've got to have redemption applied. It's got to be applied or, you know, you have to be saved. You know that, don't you? I hope so. You must be saved. And who's going to do that work on you? It's the Holy Spirit. And Jesus speaks of this, doesn't he? First of all, through conviction of sin. You're not going to need a Savior unless you're a sinner. It's not the health you need a doctor, but the sick. The problem of the sickness is you think you're healthy when you have it. Isn't that sad? The problem of the sickness is the whole time you think you're fine. And so the Holy Spirit has to come in and get you sick, basically, what you really are. He convicts the world of sin in John 16, 7 through 11. Uh, you can read those. And then he says, and in, in, in he accomplishes redemption, Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Who's the he? God the Father. How does he accomplish it? Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. What is regeneration? It's being born again. It really is. It's being made new. And who can do that to a sinner? God the Holy Spirit can. And He does. He's doing it right now all over the world. Isn't that wonderful? He's moving through the world. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot go to heaven. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And if you don't have the new birth by the Spirit, you'll go to hell. And so the Spirit applies redemption directly through the conviction of sin. He brings you to repentance and regeneration. You must be born again. Do you see that? Isn't that beautiful? The distinction of, of role and function in salvation. God the Father plans it. God the Son accomplishes it. God the Spirit applies it individually through His sovereign power. Isn't that wonderful? Any questions about that? Distinction of the Trinity. One last thing. This book by John Owen. This is an astonishing book. 300 plus pages on how you as a Christian can have communion and fellowship with each member of the Trinity. There's like 100 pages on how you can have distinct fellowship with the Father, 100 pages on the Son, and 100 pages on the Spirit. He gets it out of 1 John 1, 3. He says, our fellowship is with God and with His Son. And he zeroes in on the word and. So we have, in one sense, somehow, a distinct fellowship or unique relationship with the Father and also with His Son. 
300 pages. And it's John Owen to boot. Oh, my goodness. 300 pages of Owen. That's like 3,000 pages of somebody else. What applications? Three quickly. Number one, marriage. Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is a good picture of how husbands and wives should be one flesh. It really is. The unity between the husband and wife should be patterned after the perfect unity uh, between the Father and the Son. There should be no uh, problems over headship and submission. None of those things should come in because of the example we have between the Father and the Son. There should be no problems and no disagreements and no struggle with that because the Father and the Son have shown us how perfectly it works, how beautifully it works. Secondly, there should be no jealousy or division or distinctions within the body either. We have different roles, different functions, spiritual gifts. We are all called to do different things, but each one of us are precious and loved in the sight of God. There's no being or essence difference one to another, but we have different roles, different functions. Furthermore, there should be no divisions in the body. Euodia and Syntyche should get along with each other. It's really that practical, okay? I mean, it really is. It's really that practical. Good old Euodia and good old Syntyche, they're both up in heaven, all right? Wonderful people, but they just didn't like each other. How can that be? The Apostle Paul is saying that shouldn't be. You should get along with each other. You should agree with each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. That is the pattern of our unity. The Trinity is the pattern of our unity. That's why papering over divisions in a church will not work. We must get to the truth biblically so that we can be genuinely, perfectly united in mind and thought. And you know what's sad? The very people that God uses to bring to true unity are seen initially to be divisive. It's just the way it is. That's the burden that you have to bear. But if there are fractures and divisions, the only way you can heal is by bringing them to the surface and under the light of the Word of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? But our goal is perfectly united in mind and thought. Will we achieve that goal? Say, yes, we will. Not in this world, but yes, we will. Not here at 414 Cleveland Street, but we'll do it in heaven. Jesus prays, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Isn't that incredible? They may be one as we are one. Same thing in John 17, 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. My voice is almost gone. We have, as soon as I'm done praying, uh, outreach for any of you that are interested in going out. Go down to the parlor and uh, get some names. We're going to go out and visit folks. We've been doing an excellent job visiting the visitors to our church. We had a lot of visitors on Sunday. God be praised. He brought a lot of people to hear the Sanctity of Human Life uh, message. So uh, if you're interested and have some time to do some outreach, and by the way, you don't have to do the outreach tonight, but if you want to take a name, you could do that. All right? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the time we've had to study tonight, and I pray that you would bless uh, the teaching and bless our understanding, keep us from error as we have skated right to the edge of the limits of our understanding. Help us, O Lord, to see you properly and to be faithful to all the verses that we've looked at tonight and others besides. Father, be with us, I pray, and I pray as we continue to be witnesses for you that you give us strength and courage. Thank you, O Lord, for blessing our church and help us to continue growing in the image of Christ. It's in his holy name we pray. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. 
Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.